DiscerningHearts.com presents a Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher was ordained in 1979 as a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He obtained his doctorate from the Gregorian University and has dedicated many years of extensive ministry to retreats, spiritual direction, and teaching on the spiritual life. He's also the author of several books on the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. Father Gallagher is also featured in several series produced by EWTN, including Living the Discerning Life. A Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Father Gallagher, thank you for joining me. Always happy to be here, Chris. We are about to engage in a great adventure, really looking at the Christian aspects, the Christian message, can we say, of the Lord of the Rings. Yes, that's what we're going to do. And I want to read a few lines from Tolkien's foreword to the Lord of the Rings, which explain in his terms what we're going to do. Because as we said last time, obviously the Lord of the Rings takes place in a pre-Christian time. It takes place in our world, which is what Middle-earth is. It's just the inhabited world as we know it. But it's in a pre-Christian time. The incarnation has not yet taken place. So that there is nothing in terms of its vocabulary or in any explicit way that you'd find, uh, and you'd say that's Christian, you know, a reference to the crucifix or something like that. Mm -hmm. However, as we mentioned last time, Tolkien consciously wrote the story with the intention that it be true in what it says. And his understanding of truth is shaped by Christian revelation and even some very specifically Catholic elements as well. Uh, we went through that last time, which, which is why, as we look at it, we instinctively feel that what we're reading, although it is not in any sense explicitly Christian, harmonizes very well with our Christian faith. Now, Tolkien says this in the foreword, um, he says, since the Lord of the Rings uh, came into print, many people have wondered what its meaning was. He says, uh, I'll say something here with reference to the many opinions or guesses that I have received or have read concerning the motives and the meaning of the tale. And the next sentence is his key response to that. The prime motive was the desire of a tale teller to try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them or deeply move them. And I think the, the verdict of, at this point, millions of readers is that he succeeded admirably at that purpose. But that, as he'll say repeatedly in his letters, this is really the motive for writing The Lord of the Rings. It's just to tell a wonderful long tale that will really engage readers, and as he says, amuse, delight, at times excite or deeply move the reader. Now, he goes on to say, therefore, that in The Lord of the Rings, there is no intention that there be any kind of allegory in it. Now, by allegory, what we mean, it's a type of literature in which the persons or the events that are portrayed in the story are intended to refer explicitly in the intention of the author to other persons or intentions. So, for example, a classic example of this would be The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. 
in whom the main character Christian refers to any one of us on the Christian journey through life and all that the Slav, despond and so on, all the different things that he goes through, all of them clearly refer to aspects of the Christian journey in the world. Something very similar to that, more close to our time, would be Heinz Feet in High Places, where the main character, much afraid, goes on the same journey. She's accompanied along the way by two women who are sisters suffering in sorrow, and, and so on. Everything in that explicitly refers to aspects of the Christian journey toward God. There would be aspects of allegory, for example, as well in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Aslan is clearly a figure of Christ, and his dying and rising for the salvation of Narnia is clearly a figure of the death and resurrection of Christ for the salvation of the world, and, and so on. We could go on with examples. But in this kind of literature, the author specifically intends that what, what he is narrating refer to some else. The author um, makes that choice. And Tolkien says, I cordially dislike allegory. This was one of his very strong opinions uh, in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I suppose we do have to say that although Tolkien would say that repeatedly, there is in some of his stories, there are elements of allegory. But he goes on now to say uh, what he actually prefers. I much prefer history, true or feigned with its varied applicability, and there's the key word, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader. That is, applicability resides in the freedom of the reader, and allegory, he says, the other, resides in the purposed domination of the author. So, that Tolkien would resist any attempt to see allegory in The Lord of the Rings, but is very receptive, very open to what he calls its applicability, in which the reader sees in the various figures or different events that take place in the story an application to aspects of life and experience beyond the story. And as I said earlier, The Lord of the Rings is especially applicable to Christian revelation because that is the deep truth out of which Tolkien understood the world and which guided everything as he wrote The Lord of the Rings. As he said, and we quoted last time, unconsciously in the first writing of it, but very consciously in the revision of the work before its completion. It says so much about just the, the ability of Tolkien as a great writer to be able to fashion characters that are so full in how they are laid out for us that we see different aspects of them and how we approach them. I mean, that really is a sign of great literature, isn't it? Yes, and that's very difficult to achieve. And that's something exactly as you've said, Chris, something that Tolkien will say often. He has this marvelous essay on this kind of writing entitled On Fairy Stories, where he goes into all of this. Uh, there's no cheap or quick road to achieve what he wants, even the kind of applicability that we just described. The story has to be believable in itself, in its own terms. It's what he calls sub-creation. God is the creator, but God, who has made man his own image, 
also gave to the human person the desire and the ability to create or to sub-create under God, as Tolkien says. And that's what Tolkien has done in this book. He has sub-created an entire world with geography and customs and different peoples and individual characters and events. And all of it is believable in itself. When you read The Lord of the Rings and you get swept into the story, everything is believable within that world. There's really no point in the story at which you say, oh, that's ridiculous. That could have never happened, even in the terms, uh, even in the terms of Middle Earth as, as Tolkien has fashioned it. So yes, he is amazingly successful as an author simply writing a work of literature which is believable and draws in the reader in which everything that happened makes sense in terms of what's preceded and and the way everything is set up now because it is successful simply as a work of literature and because as i mentioned earlier the deep understanding of the world that undergirds everything is tolkien's christian faith Because of those two things taken together, it becomes richly applicable to our own Christian life. And I think we feel that. I remember a woman telling me that um, whenever she gets discouraged, just watching what's happening in the world around us and the way things are going, she goes back to the Lord of the Rings and she reads some of it or watches something in the movie and it energizes her spirit again. That's what I mean, because what she's reading there energizes her or instills hope again in her, not because it's simply an engaging story, but because she is sensing its applicability, the truth of what's happening there, that against great odds, guided by God's providence, if those who are servants of the Lord are willing to be faithful, good will triumph over evil. And so there's the renewal of the energy. But that's the applicability that Tolkien is speaking of. There's something so compelling about the way that he writes, the world that he creates, that for the first-time reader, it, for many, I would think, and myself included in that many years ago, Father Gallagher, when you approach The Lord of the Rings for the first time, it's intimidating because it seems like such a big book. It, and you're, you're wondering, oh my gosh, how can I possibly invest in this? But then you begin to read, and you are brought into, as you just said, into a created world. And it is so vivid, even whether it's the landscape or the the imagery in the sky and the trees. I mean, you are almost like a tea bag that's steeped the author's expression. And because of his Catholic faith, from what I've heard you say, that explains so much because the world he's created is so much a part of who he is. Well, you remind me of a phrase that C.S. Lewis said of Tolkien at one point in his writings that Tolkien had been, he said, inside language, um, which is how the Lord of the Rings began. It, It began as, it began because Tolkien began, who was a philologist, that was his whole life. He, he loved words and not just the science of words or understanding the exact meanings of words. But he loved the sound and the beauty of words, the way that people will, for example, listen to beautiful music and just be uh, engaged or enthralled or, or lifted up. That would happen to Tolkien when he would just hear the sound of beautiful words. And that led him to create these languages, two of them in particular, which became the, the two principal elvish languages, Quenya, which is the language of the high elves, and uh, Sindarin, which is the 
the language of the elves who never went to the blessed realm. I know we're getting deep into the mythology here. But having created these languages simply because he delighted in words, Tolkien then realized that a language cannot be complete without a setting in which it is used. And so it needs a history. It needs events. It needs a geography. And it was out of that that he began to create what would eventually become Middle-earth and eventually the uh, the mythology that he first described in the Silmarillion. The Silmarillion was published after the Lord of the Rings, but actually predates it, or much of it predates the Lord of the Rings. It's the larger mythology into which the Lord of the Rings fits at a particular moment. So all of this began, to get back to your, your observation, Chris, it began because of a deep love and beauty for words, but not only for words, for nature. Just look in the Lord of the Rings at the way Tolkien writes of trees, for example, or describes landscapes or plants. So that there, there is a density to it. There is a linguistic density. The, the, the names in the Lord of the Rings are just amazing. Um, the profusion of names for things and the beauty of them. There is a historical density to it. You have the sense as you read the Lord of the Rings that you are just touching the surface of events that go back ages and ages. It's, it's the effect that you have when, let's say, you look at ruins today in the Roman ruins in the city of Rome, or you read the literature of earlier centuries, and you just have the sense that you're just getting a glimpse into expanses of history that um, are beyond our awareness and with which we no longer have contact. You get that kind of density, and consciously Tolkien intended that in The Lord of the Rings. The descriptions of the different peoples, the description of the geography, and so on. So you put all that together, and that's what, as I said earlier, you, you have simply a marvelous work of literature. It took Tolkien 13 years to write The Lord of the Rings, and that, of course, was preceded by many years of the initial shaping of the languages and the mythology. So that there's nothing cheap, there's nothing quick, there's nothing superficial about the book. Uh, every word in it is chosen and loved and reworked many times. So the reader feels that. And that, again, as I say, is the basis for the applicability that um, we'll be exploring as we go forward. We'll return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcast, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. 
Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help discerning hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. What jumps out at me is the use of the word, the, the word, and how important that is, each and every one, even as he fashions the characters. Because it, carefully choosing how he describes each and every participant in the story, that hooks so many of us, because they are some of the most compelling, poignant characters that have ever been written in least English literature, and if not all of literature. And that is something I think that really hooks our heart if we really are open to it as we go into the Lord of the Rings, isn't it, Father Gallagher? Yes, the characters speak to us because though they are set in a mythological time and a mythological setting, which ultimately is our own world, we sense that they are very true to our own experience. The struggles that Frodo goes through on his journey on the quest, the betrayal of Saruman, who begins to lust after power, the despair of Denethor, for example, the temptation of Boromir, who successfully renounces that just before his death, the long fidelity and struggle of Aragorn, uh, Gandalf's consistent self-giving, giving of himself in so many ways to strengthen those who are good in the world. Sauron's utter corruption and desire for dominion in the world. The smaller characters who become great as the story emerges, Frodo and Sam, Mary and Pippin, Eowyn and her struggles between the command of the king to remain behind the battle in charge of those, the elderly and the children who are left behind, and her desire to do great deeds in the battle. All of these, we could go on and on and on. All of these things reflect something that is very real and recognizable in our experience. And again, Tolkien is very clear on this. What I really wanted to do, my primary purpose was just to write a wonderful long tale and obviously succeeded in this. But because he did it with such depth and out of a worldview which is true, 
To use the philosophical term, it is metaphysically true. Or to use the Christian term, it is true in terms of the revelation that we have through Scripture and through Christ. Because of that, we're very at home in that. And we sense that that it's really speaking to us in our experience today. Now, I do want to add one thing, Chris. You said something about the um, the length of the tale, which can seem a little intimidating when you first come to it. And Tolkien addresses that in the same foreword that I've already quoted. And he says, the most critical reader of all, myself, now finds many defects, minor or major. This was Tolkien was a perfectionist. He was never, ever fully satisfied with uh, anything that he did. Always wanted to keep tweaking and improving it. Uh, but fortunately, being under no obligation either to review the book or to write it again, he will pass over these in silence. And then says this, except one, that is one defect, that has been noted by others. The book is too short, which is a wonderful thing. And mm-hmm. I, I think those who have um, read The Lord of the Rings and delight in it probably have had the, this kind of experience. You, you read The Fellowship of the Ring, the first volume, and you're getting engaged in it. And you say, oh, good, there are still two books left. And then you read the, the Two Towers, and you really get deeper into it. And you say, oh, good, there's still a third volume to go. And then you start the third volume and you see the pages dwindling and you kind of hate to see the story end. You know, that that uh, experience, which I'm sure a number of those listening will have had as they've um, ever, as they've read the book. I think Tolkien uh, is very right in, in, in his sense. The book really is too short. If anyone is familiar with the story, if they've had the opportunity to be able to read it or to have even just their first encounters through the movies, the the character that I think is one of the most endearing and that stays with us is one of those little ones that you just spoke of who ends up becoming uh, tremendously great, and that's Frodo. Talk to us, if you would, Father Gallagher, about this incredible character. Well, let's look at a few quotations from The Lord of the Rings in which something of Frodo's story unfolds. And I'm going to look at his call and his response and apply that in the way we've just said to our own call and our own choices in response to that as we live our Christian life. And we'll begin this in the moment in the Fellowship of the Ring after Bilbo has had his party disappeared and with some struggle, but Gandalf's help has left the ring behind for Frodo. And now Gandalf and Frodo have an initial conversation. Gandalf then disappears for a number of years, um, returns once in a while, but then for a long period does not return, and finally comes back to Frodo's delight and visits with him at his house in Bag End. And at this point, what has happened in the intervening years is that Gandalf has discovered the truth of Bilbo's ring, that this is the one ring that Sauron's fashioned and whose possession would mean Sauron's utter domination of the world, uh, but whose destruction would mean the utter defeat of Sauron. So that this is the key linchpin, this is the key piece in the coming struggle between Sauron's desire for domination of the world and the efforts of those who uh, pursue what is good to, to resist that domination of evil in the world. 
And he has just explained this to Frodo. And they're sitting in the uh, utter peace of the Shire. It is morning. The sun is shining. Sam is outside working in the garden. And so you have a scene of complete peace, uh, complacency almost. And now into this setting comes this tale of the, the terrible danger and responsibility of the One Ring. And Frodo is just beginning to realize that something has come into his life which is going to dramatically alter everything in his life and going to require a choice of him. So after having gone through this, Gandalf Tolkien writes, paused, and then said slowly in a deep voice, This is the Master Ring, the One Ring to rule them all. He, Sauron, greatly desires it, but he must not get it. We said this last time that the book, Tolkien says in one of his letters, is ultimately about who will be God and Sauron's desire to be God of Middle-earth and worshipped as such and his great desire to reacquire the ring, the one ring which is all he needs to complete his power and make that dominion complete and for any foreseeable future. And now Frodo's response. I, I, I remember reading these next words in one of my readings of The Lord of the Rings and really being moved by the, the way Tolkien describes this. Frodo sat silent and motionless. Fear seemed to stretch out a vast hand, like a dark cloud rising in the east and looming up to engulf him. This ring, he stammered, how on earth did it come to me? Now this is the moment in our lives when we realize that something that we have not sought, something that we deeply do not want, and something that we foresee will be profoundly troubling to our lives is upon us and there's no avoiding it. To, to look biblically at some examples of this is when Moses is called by God to go back and set free the people of Israel. And he says to the Lord, I, I can't even speak. Or Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he is asked to, to go and speak God's word to the people, and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I'm not up to this. Or when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in the Annunciation and the Gospel tells us that at his greeting she is greatly troubled, she's afraid. I think of the experience of St. Thomas More when this man watched the progress of events in the England of his time under King Henry VIII and saw this inexorable conflict arrive when he was going to be forced to choose between the king's desire to become the head of the church in England and his conscience as a faithful Catholic. And in all of these cases, you can say, and I think all of us, as I say this, can, can think of times in our own lives when we've seen these moments come and everything in us would want to avoid them, but we are unable to avoid them. The situation and the choice it requires is upon us. This ring, he stammered, how on earth did it come to me? Um, Gandalf answers that question and describes the history of the ring, which has been seeking for a long time now to get back to Sauron. It was cut from Sauron's hand by Isildur, the uh, king of Gondor, who refused to throw it into the crack of doom there at Mount Doom, where these events took place. This was in an earlier age when Sauron was defeated. He has arisen once more. Isildur is betrayed by the ring to his death, 
it falls into the, the uh, river Anduin. And then uh, Gollum takes it by murders uh, Deagle, who uh, finds it in the, in the water, and takes it and goes off into the roots of the Misty Mountains. And so hundreds of years pass as the ring has no way of getting back to, to Sauron. But at this point, the ring is feeling the call from Sauron, and so it abandons Gollum. It slips from his finger in the tunnels at the roots of the Misty Mountains, and this you read in The Hobbit, which precedes The Lord of the Rings. Bilbo is lost in those tunnels, stumbles, his hand comes upon the ring, he uh, picks it up with no idea what it is, puts it in his pocket. So that at this point, uh, as Gandalf says to, to, to Frodo, the ring abandoned Gollum, which is Sauron's will, only to be picked up by the most unlikely person imaginable, Bilbo from the Shire, which is something that is completely outside the will of Sauron. Something else is at work in this, as Gandalf goes on to say. Behind that, that is, this most unlikely person one could ever imagine, a, a simple little hobbit from the Shire, picking up this mighty ring around which the destinies of the world are woven. Behind that, there was something else at work, beyond any design of the ringmaker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring. And now we can see this applying to us when these situations come into our lives. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker, that is by Sauron. And then he turns to Frodo, in which case, as Bilbo's heir, you also were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought. Now Frodo goes on to say immediately, it is not, you know, and so forth. But this is where you see something that never appears in any visible form, but is deeply and powerfully present throughout the entire story is at work. Something else is at work, another will, another plan beyond that of Sauron is at work in the story. And at this point leads uh, Bilbo to possess the ring and therefore Frodo is his heir. And what Tolkien is describing here is something that is very real in our own world. God is at work in our world. That's the something, that's the someone who has a design that is beyond that of the ringmaker of Sauron. God and his providence are very much at work in the world, but they are not seen clearly. And this is simply, uh, this is the same thing, the same situation that is at work in the Lord of the Rings. Something that will be called chance, in quotation marks, very often within the Lord of the Rings, but is not chance, is at work in all of this, as it is in our own lives. So, for example, when Frodo and uh, Sam and Pippin set out finally from Bag End to begin the journey toward Rivendell, they, by chance, as it were, in the woods meet Gildor and a group of elves who are journeying back to Rivendell. And out of that, in quotes, chance meeting, many things come. Some advice that Frodo very much needs about the Black Riders that he's beginning to encounter. Uh, Gildor will send messages to Tom Bombadil, who will then f therefore be aware. Frodo, who is going to desperately need his help a little further in the story, he will also send messages to Aragorn about Frodo's journey, um, who will also become critical for that journey to Elrond and so on. Uh, the meeting itself with Tom Bombadil in the Old Forest, which is seemingly chance, but obviously is not at all chance, 
And then maybe just one more example. What becomes the Council of Elrond, in which the fate of the world, or the project of the good who are fighting against Sauron, is determined, takes place seemingly by chance. No one plans it. Frodo arrives in Rivendell, fleeing from the Black Riders. Uh, Boromir comes up from Gondor to seek the answer to a riddle, which includes a halfling. Gloin and his son Glimly come from the dwarves to seek light and help in a situation of trial. The same thing with Legolas, who is the son of the king of the wood elves, and so on. All, all of these key players who are going to become critically important in the project of defeating evil meet seemingly by chance. But this is what Gandalf is getting at, that there's something else at work in all of this, deeper and beyond any design of the Ringmaker or of Sauron. So that this threat of providence underlies everything in the story, as it does in our own lives. Which is a powerful thing if you think about it, because what it means is that our task in life, or our calling, use the the theological word vocation if we wish, the marriage to which God has called us, or in my own case, the priesthood and religious life to which God has called me, the single condition for those who in God's providence live that condition now in life. All of this is meant. There is a providence in this. God has a plan working through all of this. Uh, If we think of this in biblical terms, when Joseph meets with his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis, and he says to them, you meant it for evil, the way they mistreated him earlier in life, but God meant it for good, even that. When uh, Jeremiah in chapter 1 says to God, I'm too young, I I can't do it, and God says, no, don't say that, I'll be with you. This is, gets into one of the themes that we'll touch on a, a number of times as we go through these reflections that Tolkien calls ennoblement and explains at some point in his letters as sanctification. That is, that humble persons, persons who look at themselves and say, I don't have the qualities for this task, it's too difficult, it's beyond me, are chosen by God, are meant by God, intended by God for that task for that service, for that life, and that way of loving in the world. And as they faithfully go through this, with all the struggles involved, they are ennobled or sanctified. As you said earlier about Frodo, uh, a small character grows increasingly as he does his humble best to say yes to the call. You've given us so much to kind of digest and ponder, Father Gallagher, as we come to a conclusion on this particular episode, what would a suggestion be for those who are on this journey with us for the Lord of the Rings? Would you suggest that they just begin to enter into the into the story? Well, I would say it's the realization that just as Bilbo was meant to find the ring, Tolkien underlines that word meant. And just as you, Frodo, were also meant, again, underlined to have it, and that that's an encouraging thought. That same encouraging thought is there in our lives. Through the circumstances in which God brought us into the world, circumstances of place and time and family and occupations, the way God created us to be, out of that has come a call that is meant by the Lord. And it's, it's very encouraging to know then that our task is, like Frodo's, it's simply to do our imperfect best 
But we're going to have help in this, as we'll see, as Frodo will have help in this, to say yes, to live it well. And by doing that, we are contributing not only to our own personal journey of salvation, but we are making a difference in the world that God has desired from us from all eternity in putting us into the world at this time. It's a way of saying that in God's eyes, our lives are precious, they matter, and our contribution is important. And that is something that speaks to our heart, doesn't it? Maybe that's one of the reasons, as we said before, as people begin to read and to just to take this in, it, it does speak to our hearts, doesn't it? Yes, I think what we're doing here is just making more conscious or explicit or putting into words something of what's happening when we enjoy the story. Thank you so much, Father Gallagher. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. 